England, in the gallant days when history hung on the flight of an arrow or the slash of a sword, when feudal barons ravaged the countryside to live in pomp and splendor, when one man alone dared challenge the might of his country's oppressors, Robin Hood, outlaw of Sherwood Forest and his stalwart band, robbing the rich to feed the poor, ready to fight for king, for country, or for maiden fair. Now this forest is wide. Can shelter and clothe and feed a band of good determined men, good swordsmen, good archers, good fighters. Are you with me? It's Errol Flynn as Robin Hood, Olivia de Havilland as Maid Marion, Claude Rains, Basil Rathbone, and the cast of thousands, reliving history's most colorful adventure. I suppose you realize the penalty for killing a king's deer is death. Are there no exceptions? Will you come with me? To Sherwood? I have nothing to offer you but a life of hardship and danger, but we'd be together. Because I love you, Robin, I'd come. Even the danger would mean nothing if you were with me. Let me ram those words down his throat, Your Highness. From this night on, I use every means in my power to fight you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program where we ask the magical question, Is It Yours? Today, I am joined for the first time by Darren and Ruth Sutherland. Uh, I threw out the invitation to them, and they... uh, reluctantly agreed, giving me a list of, oh, I don't know, 25, 30 movies that they were interested in. Uh, Thanks for coming on, guys. Oh, we're so happy to be here. I I think, actually, you probably uh, cut us short there with 25 or 30. I think the list was even longer than that, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm I'm already going to go out on a limb and say this will not be the only time that you're going to be on here because I'm pretty confident that we will be doing several of the movies on that list. The list you gave me uh, I got to tell you, a couple of people have or- already requested to come and do certain movies that you have you have on your list, so I will do those with some other people, but there's quite a few here that are not covered, so okay. uh, so you, you will exciting. be back again. So the movie we picked for tonight is The Adventures of Robin Hood uh, from 1938 with Errol Flynn. Now, if there's anybody in the audience who has not seen this movie yet, uh, do not be afraid because it's 1938. Uh Ruth and Darren and I were just talking about it and saying how incredibly well this movie holds up. Uh, The colors are so rich in this movie that I don't think you'd mix it up with a modern movie because it doesn't have that dark feel of today's adventure movies. But it does not feel like a, I guess, what would it be, almost 80-year-old movie? It does not feel like that at all. You're absolutely right, Paul. It's Like you said, it's almost 80 years old. And it doesn't look uh, like that at all. It really benefits from being a period piece, the beautiful technicolor, uh, the wonderful use of outdoor filming, and the very lavish sets that they built. It looks very, very modern. Yeah, no question about it. How, how were each of you first exposed to this? Oh, I think just growing up, coming across it on reruns on television. Yeah, the same for me. This is one of those movies that would show up on Saturday or Sunday afternoons, matinee um, on the local TV stations. Yeah, that's so we all have a similar experience. I remember this coming up on the local WPIX Channel 11 in New York. Uh, and they would, I, I would assume they played it once a year or so. I don't know for sure exactly how frequently. But they used to go with a kind of a heavy ad campaign building up to it. It would be like a Sunday afternoon movie, but for a week beforehand you'd see commercials. And the big one I remember is the scene with him walking in with the deer on his shoulders. And so this this has kind of been a perennial for Uh-oh. me for years yes, and years. That, that was... I'm sorry, you kind of cut out there. Oh, sorry about that. I think it did break up just a little bit. But I was saying I love that grand entrance that he made with the deer... Uh, coming into the castle, striding through. That was impressive. I was watching the uh, the video. I watched the video last week, and then I started watching it again uh, just before we recorded. I didn't get too far into it this time, but I was watching it with the commentary. And the commentator was a film historian. I don't recall his name. And he mentioned how uh, basically Errol Flynn has three grand entrances in this movie. And that is one of the three. 
I'm glad you mentioned that, Paul, because uh, we watched actually uh, probably the same commentary track, and it's really nice to hear that historian. He did a great job of covering the movie, but that is a fantastic entrance that he has there. You know, he just walks in and strides in, takes command in a room full of enemies, and uh, it's a favorite scene of mine. Absolutely mine too. Before we get to that one in depth, and I, you know, I brought it up, so I can't believe you guys were going off. Uh, the the movie opens. We, we see a little bit of Prince John, uh, and and just kind of he does a little bit of a, that's which is Claude Rains. I should mention that, uh, and he does a for a guy with no mustache, he does a little mustache twirling right from the start in this movie. Uh, you know, you, you you see his evil intent. He talks about how they're gonna uh, tax the uh, the people to. Uh, in theory, ransom uh, Prince uh, King Richard, uh, which we all know right from the start that he has no intention of doing that. That he's just trying to make sure he saves the throne for himself. Uh, so, so we get a little of that, and then we cut to Much the Miller's son, played by Herbert Munden, uh, who is being arrested by Guy of Gisborne, and then is rescued by Robin and Will Scarlet. And that is his first big uh, introduction to the movie when Robin comes in that scene. And that's another great entrance. I really like it. It's the way he and uh, Will Scarlet both ride in on their horses and leap over that one tree limb that's uh, reaching across. It's a fantastic scene, and they do such a good job there. Errol Flynn does most of his own stunts, but you can see there the cut that they do when they leap over that tree and then turn. Just perfect timing right behind another tree so the different actors can come out the other side. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. And and I mean obviously there's stunt work being done in this movie, but I think it's I think the uh whoever they had as a stunt double for Errol Flynn uh you know kind of it's I wouldn't go as far as to say seamless, but you don't re- it doesn't jump out at you. You're absolutely right. And Errol Flynn did almost all of his own stunts. There're just a couple that he did in that one and then a couple of other dangerous ones uh involving heights for the most part. But every other time, it's really him doing his own stunts, and they do a good job of keeping the camera on him, so you can see that's really him doing his stunts. It's great, great work. Yeah, this movie was directed by uh, Michael Curtiz, who uh, has a long list of top movies, including Casablanca, on his resume. Uh, but apparently, he and Errol Flynn did not like each other. Uh, I don't know if you heard about that at all, but uh, there, w- there was just a point where. Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, what the story is. Something to the effect of that he had them dueling with swords with real sharp blades on them because, in his opinion, he needed to have them have some real fear of consequences or the acting (laughs) wouldn't come through. (laughs) And uh, apparently Errol Flynn, like, he was up on some sort of a, I guess, like a uh, boom or something, and Errol Flynn climbed up and grabbed him by the throat and was like, I don't know if he was dangling him off the edge or something, but he started saying, how, how real does this feel, or something along those lines. <laughs> they, they, they apparently did not like each other. Er- Errol Flynn was apparently truly a horseman, and they had filmed uh, They Died With Their Boots On together. And apparently, Curtis, uh, there was a scene that they filmed where several horses were killed, and uh, Flynn was very, very upset with the cavalier attitude about that. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that too, because you know this movie has two directors credited, and uh, Keeley was the first director, and uh, he and Errol Flynn were very good friends, and Errol Flynn liked him as the director. I guess the Keeley's repertoire. Repu- um, reputation was for being very low-key, very good to his actors and his crew, and they all sort of liked working with him. Uh, But they started off with filming all the uh, Sherwood Forest scenes, and those were all filmed first. And of course, they ended up with some bad weather and some rain and ended up getting behind schedule. And some of it was probably due to the weather. Some of it the studio thought was due to Keeley maybe not pushing the cast and crew hard enough. So when they came back from the location filming, they were two weeks behind schedule, so he was unceremoniously replaced as director, and and then Errol Flynn got stuck with uh, critiques that he wasn't a fan of. But I mean, despite the friction between the two, I, I cannot uh, criticize Curtiz's, uh resume. He's he's made some great great movies in his day. So you know, some movies that are considered all time classics. So whether whether they liked each other or not, just the same, uh, he's. he's he gets results, we'll put it that way. Absolutely. We're very happy with the results. Yeah, I mean, he's a great director. You can't fault him there, so uh, that's not the intent. He is a fabulous director. He gets the most out of every scene, 
and uh, did it economically. So, you know, he artistic and business-wise, Warner Brothers liked him and used him a lot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, like I said, with, with his track record, I, you can't blame them. No, Casablanca is another, well, it's another favorite film of ours. So if we get invited on to cover that one, we'll be saying it's Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll put that on the list of potential ones for you guys to return with. It's, 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 it's really not a matter, like I said, of if you're going to be back. It's just what we're going to cover when you come back. Oh, thank you. So talking about that first scene uh, when, when they rescue Much, uh, he was played by Herbert Munden. And I was uh, interested when I was reading up on the movie a little bit. Uh, he died at 40 years old a year after this movie was made uh, in a car crash. Uh, and th- what they said, the trivia fact they had for him was that uh, his nephew uh, bragged afterwards that he, he was the only actor in, in Hollywood that was able to drink Errol Flynn under the table. Oh. <laughs> Which, knowing uh, the legend of Errol Flynn and his hard drinking, uh, that that's saying a lot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's that's a funny story and a sad story, too. I wasn't aware of that. Hmm. Yeah, I wondered like why I hadn't seen him in more things. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of actors in this movie, and, I, and as we go through it, I want to mention each of them, or at least most of them. Uh, most of the actors in this movie, I would say this was the pinnacle of their career. This is their best role they ever had. Uh, there's a couple of minor exceptions to that, but for the most part, including Errol Flynn, I think it's the best role ever. Uh, mm-hmm. But most of them you can say, oh yeah, I've seen him before in other things. I don't ever remember seeing Herbert Munden in anything else, and I guess that's why, since he passed away so shortly after this. Yeah, I'm sure you're right, because he's very good in this, and you would have expected to see him more. And speaking of that, in the same scene, the other character, the other significant character that we haven't discussed yet is Guy of Gisborne, uh, Basil Rathbone. Oh, we have to discuss Basil Rathbone. Yes, he yeah, does it, an excellent mm-hmm. job with the role. Yeah, he, he's... He's a, a, a to me. He's a perfect counterpart to Robin Hood. Uh, when when you make when you you know when in literature when they have a, a hero and then their opposite number, that's who Basil Rathbone is in this movie. And he's such a to me such a good actor because one of the things about him is that he could play a hero or a villain equally well. Yes, it's. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that because you know he's one of our favorites in so many things and he is commanding in this film i'm glad you mentioned that you know he was a good counterpoint to errol flynn because you know they even uh, you know have the same stature and stamina and and you know that sort of devilishly good looks sort of about them as well you could imagine um them really being uh you know competitive at anything and everything both as the characters and the actors it really comes through he just uh really takes that part and makes the most of it now, the comment I heard or that I read was that Basil Rathbone considered Errol Flynn to be good company and a good person, but they weren't good friends. Mm. And apparently one of the reasons was he felt that Flynn was just a little too cavalier mm. about how he approached his role. <laughs> and Interesting. surprisingly enough, one of the things I read was that years later, Errol Flynn admitted he was bored while making this movie. Oh my goodness. Which which That's shocked me, to, to be honest with you, because he seems, throughout the movie, and I guess it's a, a tribute to how good of an actor he is, he seems like he's having the time of his life. Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I would have never thought that, especially, you know, he really lucked up to getting this role that made his whole career. He wasn't their first choice, so he happened to be in the right place at the right time when the first choice fell apart. And you would think that he would have relished the opportunity to get this lead role in this Technicolor film. There hadn't been very many uh, Technicolor movies at that point in time. I don't know how he was bored. No, me either. <laughs> yeah, same, same here. I, I was shocked when I read that. Yeah, this this was, uh, I guess it's, I'm trying to remember, Warner Brothers, right? I think it's Warner yes, Brothers. Yeah. It was, this was their first yes. color, first uh, venture into Technicolor, apparently. And it was made at a budget of $2 million, which was the most they had ever spent on a movie at this point. Mm-hmm. So they had a lot riding on this. And initially, as you noted, Darren, uh, they had their number one studio actor lined up to play the part, and that's James Cagney. And you can only imagine how different this movie would be with James Cagney in the lead. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it would be a very different movie with James Cagney. It would still be a good movie, I'm sure, but very different. Mm-hmm. 
now the uh, keep, you know going on with the other actors in this uh, in that first scene we have Will Scarlet who's played by Patrick Knowles. Now that was originally supposed to be David Niven, mm. which I could see that that's not such a drastic transition as far as I'm visualizing it in my head. Uh, Patrick Knowles was apparently very very good friends with Errol Flynn. Uh, and it's interesting, Paul. I had heard as well, and you know, I kept looking for it when I saw the movie that they were good friends and they had worked together before, uh, and uh, in at least one other movie where they had them play relatives. Here again, I think they play relatives because I think Robin Hood and and Will Scarlet are supposed to be related, and it was because the studio felt the two of them looked alike, and I couldn't ever see that. I mean. Uh, he does a great job in the role, but I didn't really see the uh, resemblance uh, that I had read about and was looking for. What about you? Well, when th- it's that's a very interesting point because when you see them in costume with their, you know, their wigs, because they both were wearing wigs actually, uh, on, I can see where they don't look alike. But if you look, uh, I guess it would probably be on Patrick Knowles' Wikipedia page or his IMDb page. One of one of those, they have his, you know, his glamour shot, and I do see a similarity in appearance to uh, Errol Flynn there. Okay, we'll have to take a look at that. That's interesting. Now, the the uh, just you know for is it yours trivia? Patrick Knowles also had a significant role in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, which we've already covered on this show. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> So, so from that scene, that opening scene when they rescue Much, the next scene is the one we started to talk about where uh, Robin comes into the feast. And that's, that's a pretty spectacular scene overall, from, from beginning to end. Before Robin comes in, just to have Prince John saying that he's basically usurped the throne and that he's taking it. And you could see the people who are seated there, all the noblemen, uh, I guess, of, of the Norman... Uh, persuasion are all taken aback by it but none of them is uh, brave enough to challenge it and then right. robin comes in i'm sorry go ahead ruth i think they were stunned they couldn't believe what was happening before their eyes yeah i i agree because it was just so bold for him to do that he he kicked Longchamps out who was named regent by uh king richard and was loyal to king richard and just took over and everybody's like uh all right yeah i'll be loyal to you now so <laughs> Robin comes in in a great scene with the deer on his shoulder. I, I love the way he actually like knocks people down using the deer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then, then he comes in and just openly speaks his mind. The only thing about that, and it's such a minor nitpick that I'm, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm being silly, but it really seemed to me like it, it almost came down to chance that he survived the moment. Because mm-hmm. Prince John calls for Dickon to throw the, the spear... And had he thrown it just slightly more true, Robin would have been killed. I, I will agree with you completely on that scene. Uh, it's actually one of those where it's one of the scenes that makes this movie, even though it's still fantastically enjoyable, you know you're watching a fairy tale, fantasy, high adventure. It's not realistic adventure. And that's an example of that sort of scene. It's a bit fantasy-ish that he survived that situation, but it's a fairy tale adventure and it comes off perfectly for that. It makes for a great story. Yeah, definitely. And it's it is definitely a fairy tale type story, kind of an adult fairy tale, I guess, a little bit. Because although I could see telling children this story. Yeah. But, you know, and there's a whole nice action sequence there of him escaping at that point. From there we move on to uh the famous it's like every scene is famous i just moved yes famous, i know famous <laughs> scene. uh the next the next scene is when they recruit little john and that's that's a, a another great scene where robin and john have the quarterstaff battle on the uh, log yes i love the setting for that it looked perfect and it's interesting too that you know the interaction between the two of them in that scene it comes off you see that sort of flippant playful attitude that Errol Flynn and Alan Hell both have during that scene. It's almost like they're enjoying a competition. They know they aren't enemies uh, and they're making a big deal over something sort of small, but they both are confident and they're willing to, you know, have this friendlyish fight. And then of course it turns once they learn who each other is and it's it's just a perfect scene. And of course it's from the original legends, but it's very well executed in this sequence. And the the interesting trivia for that is that uh, Alan Hale Sr. played Little John 
1922 in the Douglas Fairbanks version of Robin Hood. Then he played him in this, and then he played him again in 1950 with, uh, I believe it was John Derrick playing Robin Hood. That's remarkable. I really like that bit of trivia. Yeah, very much so. Now, so have, and especially, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm, I was going to say, and especially with the, you know, the Douglas Fairbanks movie had not been that many more years earlier, maybe 15 years or so earlier. And uh, so that movie would have still been in people's minds. And it's nice that they had the confidence still to cast Alan Hell in that role because he's perfect in it. He, he is perfect in it. And when I see, well, I know this movie, obviously, the best, but I've seen footage of him playing uh, Little John in the Douglas Fairbanks movie. And I've seen photos of him as Little John in the later version. Uh, and certainly he looks the best in this one. And that's mm. probably a byproduct of the Technicolor combined with the costuming, combined with the fact that he was, you know, much older in the 1951. Right. Yeah, he was at his prime in this one. You're absolutely right. And it, it's sad. I believe, if I remember right, he he passed away the same year the 1951 came out, if I remember right. He passed away just a few months after it came out. Very sad. Yeah, that is uh, but he, he lived on with his it threw his son on Gilligan's Island <laughs> in my mind for quite some time. <laughs> Absolutely. So going from that scene, then we, we quickly go to them recruiting Friar Tuck. Uh, another. Now that one, <laughs> the, the, the scene against little John, I'm kind of with you that they, they both understand the stakes. They're both having fun with it. And I actually like the fact that John is, ter- John turns out to be superior to Robin with the quarterstaff mm-hmm. yeah. because it's nice to, you know, the, he doesn't have to be the best at every single thing. Yes, you know? that's believable. But the scene with Friar Tuck, it seems to me that the practical joke the Merry Men are playing on him there could theoretically have cost Robin his life. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you mean, uh, especially when they're setting all of the Merry Men are setting Robin up because he's the only one of them who doesn't know who Friar Tuck is. And they set him up really quite badly if uh, it could have gone very differently. Yeah. I mean, they, they sent him off saying, oh, he's known for his piety and blah, blah, blah. And then as soon as he's out of hearing range, what, are you kidding me? He's the finest swordsman. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's like he, he could have easily just kind of cut Robin's head off and then they would have been like, whoops. <laughs> Maybe we're lucky he was a friar and he held his hand. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, but, the, you know, I always ever since then, I've always wanted to walk around with a mutton joint. Like <laughs> Now, Friar Tuck is Eugene Paulette. Uh, I'm not as familiar with him as I am with some of the other guys in this, or some of the other actors, rather. Uh, but I've seen him in other things. Uh, I seem to remember him being in, I think it was in a Laurel and Hardy short. Oh, nice. Kind of as, as the comic foil to, to Laurel and Hardy. I could imagine that. We're loyal Laurel and Hardy fans as well, so we probably have that. And uh, I could certainly see that. I think I had heard, was he... I think he was very popular in the UK, if I remember right. And I'm trying to remember what brought him to Hollywood. Um, but I'm like you. I can't place him in other things, but I would probably recognize him when I see him. Certainly a secondary character actor. Yeah, I know I've definitely seen him in other things. So so moving on from uh, recruiting Friar Tuck, if only to, ser- to, what is it, if only to save them from their thieving ways, uh, <laughs> we, we go on to another... Another big uh, scene where uh, Robin and the men capture the Normans who are transporting the uh, tax money to the castle. And uh, I believe that's when we get the third introduction of Robin, when he does the Welcome to Sherwood that we all know from the Bugs Bunny cartoon. That's exactly what I was thinking of, was from the Bugs Bunny cartoon. Yeah, that's that wonderful uh, swing that he does into camera. So, yes, another big entrance for him. And it's... That's a nice scene, not only for the adventure aspect of it, of them uh, capturing the transport group, but also you have some nice character moments where Robin takes Maid Marian, who we should probably talk about Olivia de Havilland for a few minutes, uh, but where he takes her and he shows her how he isn't there to steal. He's there to protect and he's helping out the, you know, the, the, the people who can't help themselves. And I think that carries a little bit of weight in this movie because Robin isn't one of the people who had lost his wealth. Robin is a nobleman and could have just gone on, you know, just ignoring everything that was going on around him. And he still would have been fine. So he basically gave up all, all that he had so that he could protect these people. And that, 
you know, that's never actually said overtly, but you kind of understand it through the whole movie that that's going on. No, I'm really glad you mentioned that too, uh, uh, Paul, because that's one of the nice things, you know, going all the way back to his first introduction that we were talking about earlier, because, you know, he stumbles onto that scene of much killing the king's deer and he makes, you know, he takes in that situation quickly and makes a decision that basically, you know, turns his whole life around. Uh, could have destroyed it, but he knew what was right and what he had to do. And then I love this scene that you're talking about now after they've, um, you know, stopped that caravan and he gets the chance to show her because that's what's one of the nice things about this movie. It's fun and light and playful and adventurous. But it drops a scene in now and then just to remind us that, you know, there are serious situations behind the scenes going on. And Robin isn't just out there playing. He's out there doing something just for the people that need it. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, he has such a cavalier attitude through the movie that I think it's easy to just kind of get get wound up in the adventure and lose sight of the fact of the stakes, which are very real in this movie. Mm. So that that is a big factor. Now, uh, what do you guys think about uh, Olivia de Havilland? Oh, I really enjoyed her. I was impressed with her acting, and I thought she did a great job with the character. It was great to see a strong female character, and she was, you know, beautiful, of course, but also intelligent and confident, and just really enjoyed her time on the screen. Yeah, I'm such a strong character for, especially for 1938. It's another thing that helps this movie not seem dated. Because you have your lead female is not demure. She doesn't need to be rescued. She is strong-willed. She stands up. She makes her own decision. She puts her life in jeopardy. Uh, it's just, again, a very modern take on that character. And, you know, Olivia de Havilland was like that in real life. And I think that's probably why she was a perfect fit for this character. Because she stood up to studio executives in real life. And she stood up to... Prince John and uh, Guy Gisborne and the Sheriff of Nottingham in this movie. Yeah, apparently she was involved in a major lawsuit against the studio mm-hmm. uh, before all of this happened and uh, was successful. And had she not been successful, she would have basically had thrown her career away effectively. Uh, so she put everything on the line. So, yeah, uh, what you're saying about her being a very strong person is clearly true. Uh, and being such a strong person on July 1st, she will be 100 years old. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Remarkable. That really is. She's still alive. Yes. And I just yeah. quickly opened up her uh, IMDb page. And interestingly, born July 1st, 1916 in Tokyo, Japan. I, I remember hearing that uh, that she was from Tokyo. I don't know where I heard that at first. Uh, and it was, it, was it 1916? So she's already over 100. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Oh, that's, wow. Uh, yeah, so she's, she's going to be 101 in, wow. in July. <laughs> That, we missed her amazing. centennial. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel bad now. I, I should have sent something. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have no idea what what she's you know physically, mentally at this point in her life at that age. But uh, you know, God, God love her for getting that far. Mm-hmm. She got all the good genes. Uh, she was beautiful and long lived. Yes. <laughs> and well, she her sister is Joan Fontaine, and I think she lived into her nineties. Fantastic. Uh-huh. I'm taking a quick look at her now. She she was born 1917 and lived till 2013. 96 wow. years old. Wow. Fabulous. The, the younger sister. She didn't quite make it. Mm. But, it, you know, she she and Errol Flynn, uh, back to Olivia de Havilland, uh, they had a, uh, you know, they, they were a known couple on the screen. Uh, I have no idea if they ever had any type of off-the-screen romance or not, because uh, he he was a known womanizer. Uh, but I don't know if they ever did any, you know, had anything. But I think they were in either nine or ten movies together over their careers. That, yeah, that sounds right. And I know they definitely remained very good friends. I remember hearing her talk about, you know, how once he passed away, she really felt a sense of loss. Yeah, I could imagine. Well, especially you know, when when you have that type of a connection. Even from a uh, professional point of view, I think, you know, it starts to mean a lot to you. Mm-hmm. So having humiliated the uh, Sir Guy of Gisborne and the uh, Sheriff of Nottingham, and we should probably mention the Sheriff of Nottingham. Now, I guess my <laughs> – I'm trying to remember why I always thought the Sheriff of Nottingham was a more uh, substantial villain than in this. In this, he's more or less comic relief. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm wondering if my my exposure to the Sheriff of Nottingham outside of this is more from Bugs Bunny than anything else. <laughs> That's really good, too. You know, I think that if I remember right, Ruth probably would know better than me, so she'll correct me here if I misspeak. I think, interestingly, that Guy of Gisborne, who's played by Basil Rathbone in this movie, is the actual villain from the earliest versions of the story. But that there are later versions of the story where the Sheriff of Nottingham is the um, major villain. And I think that we've seen a lot of films and TVs uh, shows over the year that pick and choose which mm-hmm. one they want to focus on. So I, I think it's probably not just Bugs Bunny, but it definitely is in this movie. They're taking the approach of Guy of Gisborne as the the uh, real adversary as opposed to the Sheriff of Nottingham. And I think that's probably because this movie, the Howard Pyle collection, the Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, had been published in the 1880s. And at that point in time, that was the most well-researched collection of the Robin Hood stories that sort of pulled them all together. And that was used as a resource for this movie. And I think that's probably why they went the Guy of Gisborne route, because of those early legends. And I think it was a nice effect having like three different bad guys together. So kind of that trio of Prince John, the sheriff and guy and having some variety among the characters, I thought came across well for the scripting for the movie. Good point, Ruth, because they are all very different. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree with that. I think uh, I think the movie, the movie demonstrated a, you know, there's so many levels of this movie that I think they did well. And one of them is is in, in the script. You know, they're not all stereotypical types. They, they all have a little bit of a different thing to, to offer us. And certainly the, uh, the the villains aren't necessarily two-dimensional. I, I agree. I, Prince John might be, I wouldn't call him two-dimensional even, but he's definitely the most single-minded. He has only one thing in mind, which is getting that crown. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, he's certainly driven. Uh, there's yes. no question about that, and he's there's there's no price that I think he's not willing to pay. That's right. You know, I, I think if if it if it turned out to him that he had to uh, betray the sheriff or a guy, I think he would do it in a heartbeat to, mm-hmm. to oh, secure definitely. his own power. And and yeah. that's one thing about it though is is I wonder if they're aware of that in their performances and how they played it. I, I always got the sense that they were mm. that they don't totally trust him. But that, I agree. that could be me reading into it. I don't know. No, I think that probably you're right there, Paul, because I think that you were exactly right. You were saying something that I had always thought, too, which is Prince John is so driven with that one thing that he will he will use anyone any way that he can. And I think that everyone knows that. I think that's why the noblemen aren't willing to stand up to him, because they know he has no loyalty to any of them. So I think that they're all probably afraid of him. I think they're all probably aware of him for that. He's in a position that he has the opportunity to do that, you know, some terrible things to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that he wouldn't hesitate to mm-hmm. do so. Uh, the next thing that we come up with, well, first we have a little scheming session between the three villains and at the Sheriff of Nottingham's suggestion, which keeps him from being a total buffoon because he comes up with the idea, uh, they stage the archery tournament. Mm-hmm. Now, the archery tournament, see, the thing about it, and, and I, what I like, one of the things I like about it is it, show, it creates a... Uh, some, some, it's something that's not quite noble and wonderful about Robin, because the whole reason he gets into trouble here is purely based on ego. <laughs> yes, he cannot resist going in and showing them how you know how he's gonna how he's the best marksman in in the world, rather than <laughs> just let temptation. it go. Exactly, just because because Maid Marian's gonna give the uh, the rose or whatever it is that she's gonna give the silver arrow, whatever the prize was. I don't even remember, uh, but. You know, he could have sneaked into the castle and met up with Maid Marian any time he wanted. He didn't. He didn't need to, you know, defeat every other archer in order to do it. <laughs> you're absolutely right. He even sneaks into the castle to see her another time in the movie, so he certainly could have. You're right. <laughs> now, one of the things though about it is the the at the you know the, the final shots. Uh, I forget which what the marksman he's up against, what that guy's name is, but that guy hits a dead center bullseye. Then Robin shoots and he splits the arrow. So what we're what we effectively have there is that both of them hit exact dead center on the bullseye. Mm-hmm. 
So why does Robin win? <laughs> it's um, uh, that's a good question, Paul. I I won't say that I know my archery rules well enough to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's something in the rule books that says if you split somebody's arrow, yours supersedes theirs. I, I don't know. You would think that the other archer would at least get a chance to see if he could split Robin's arrow. <laughs> yeah, it's a tie at that point as far as I'm concerned. But Robin uh, they have to go into overtime. Yeah, it should go into overtime, exactly. <laughs> Uh, but it's much more dramatic this way. It is. And there are apparently many stories of how they filmed that scene, because obviously they didn't have CGI back in 1938. Uh, and, and I'm not sure which, like I said, there were various things that they said that they did, uh, one of which was that they had some sort of a line that they used to pull the arrow along. But I'm not sure I, I buy that, because I don't know if it would look as real as it does. I've I've heard that same rumor, Paul, and... I, my understanding is that it's never been proven. It was told by one man who worked on the films after Howard Hill, the archer who did uh, all the archery in the film, passed away. Uh, it never could be filmed, uh, especially as you know, people studied the film later on and tried to look at it in, uh, up close. They could never see any sign of a line. Now, what they do see is the fact, and they had admitted this because Howard Hill was able to fire the arrows repeatedly and split an arrow in two, but they never could get the effect on camera that they wanted. So they did create an arrow that was sort of like pre-split that they then tied together so that when he split it, it sort of split apart more dramatically. So that they've been able to see. So I think that other uh, one with the line is just an unfounded rumor and uh, it, because by all accounts, he was able to hit that arrow repeatedly during the filming. That's that's pretty amazing. Just just to think that there was an archer out there that was good enough. And I don't care what distance he was from. There's an archer out there that's good enough to actually hit and split an arrow like that to have that kind of pinpoint aim. That's, you know, that's like the stuff that comic books are made of. Well, uh, we'll segue there real quickly because, you know, Howard Hill is pretty amazing. He. He was known for decades as the world's greatest archer. He won more than 100 different archery competitions. Uh, he did all the archery work in this film. And he went on to become a producer and director for documentaries uh, for a couple of decades after this film. He made a lot of them, including lots of ones about archery. But it's interesting because we talk in comics, like you just said. Mike Grell, uh, we've talked about. We're a huge fan of his works. He's a huge fan of Robin Hood. He wrote and uh, drew Green Arrow, and he pulled Howard Hill into the Green Arrow origin story when he got a chance to tell the origin story. He had Howard Hill be the person who had taught Oliver archery. So that's really great, too, to sort of tie all that together with this film. Hmm. Oh, that's, that's an interesting fact that I had no idea about. Now, I understand that he actually played one of the competitors in the tournament. I'm not sure which. He was Elwin the Welshman, who is the... He's not the next to the last one, but there are two that get ruled out right before um, Errol Flynn has the last shot with the one archer in the competition. So Howard Hill is Elwin the Welshman, who is in the foreground walking behind those two. Uh, he throws his bow down dramatically to catch everyone's attention. All right, so the next time I watch it, I'll have to look for that. Uh, another interesting trivia fact that I came up with, or a trivia goof, apparently, and I, I don't remember which scene it's from, but they said at one point, Robin walks into a scene, it might be the banquet scene, uh, with five arrows in his quiver. <laughs> and over the course of the scene, he shoots 13 arrows. <laughs> and when he leaves, he has five arrows in his quiver. <laughs> Something wow. I've never noticed in watching it, but I, but I read that today. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> well, that's that's like the uh, you know what people say in in some of these cop movies where you know, the guy's got a six you know six gun and shoots fifteen bullets out of it and <laughs> never runs out. <laughs> that's again the uh, fairy tale fantasy adventure part of it. <laughs> oh yeah, and I'm perfectly okay with that. I have no problem with with errors of that level. I have no issue with at all. Um, so that so now Robin is captured. He's sentenced to death. Uh, trying to remember, they're going to hang him, I guess. Yes. Uh, and you know he's kept in a dungeon, and that's the only. It's kind of the only scene where you could see he's downtrodden 
to a degree, and it's only a small degree. But right. he's, you know, he, he's his outfit's not as brightly colored. He doesn't have the huge grin on his face. Things are looking pretty grim for Robin at this point. Mm-hmm. And his rescue is really totally thanks to Maid Marian. You know, she, yes. she, she tells there again, and that's strong female again. Exactly. She let, she lets the merry men know what's going to go on, and she, and they come up with this scheme together uh, where they have. Uh, I'm trying to remember. The, I'm mixing up the scenes because I started going into uh, the scene at the end with with King Richard, but they they manage to sneak into the I guess the courtyard and shoot the executioner. And apparently mm-hmm. Robin somehow knows instinctively exactly what's going to go on because he manages to jump right <laughs> off onto a horse and, you know, even with his hands bound, is able to direct the horse well enough. And uh, they manage the escape with a little help from Friar Tuck, who pulls a <laughs> wagon out in front of the uh, pursuing party. And that's such a fabulous scene. That whole sequence is is really fun. It's really action-packed. I really love it. And it's probably the only other examples that I can really think of where Errol Flynn didn't do his own stunts because that wonderful uh, where he cuts the rope to let down the uh, gate and he rides the rope up to the top of the gate and then drops down the other side. That was a stunt man doing that scene as well. Those are really the only scenes that I'm aware of that he didn't do himself, but it's a spectacular scene, uh, sequence, that whole thing. I love that sequence. It's so exciting to watch. Yeah, it, it really is. And, and now that you mention it, it does, stand out to me that that is done in a long shot the entire time you never get a close-up in that one because obviously it is a stuntman which again like i said i hadn't even realized it until you just pointed it out to me because one of the things about this movie is uh, at least for me every time i've watched it and i've probably seen this movie easily 50 times maybe more uh every time i watch it i just get engrossed in it and when mm-hmm. i'm engrossed in it it's very hard for me to be a critic and you know that's a uh- Good point, because, you know, like you mentioned, we did get a chance to see this at the theater on the big screen, I think in October or November. And we rewatched it again twice, uh, prepping for this. And it just never gets old. You can't watch it too soon and you never get bored of it. It's fantastic always. Yes. To me, this is this is the prototype for an action adventure movie. I think so many movies have borrowed from this and taken from this, and yet none of it, when you're watching this, none of it seems overplayed or anything. There's nothing where you say, oh, that's just an old trope, and it, and it's not interesting. It's just, it always seems fresh to me. It established all the tropes that everyone else copied. <laughs> and yet, but it doesn't feel that way. You know, I remember we, we talked about, uh, on Back to the Bins, once we talked about one of the early Wolverine books. Mm. And we talked about how, some of the elements of that book have become so overused over the years, but that we had to give it a pass in this particular book that we were covering because this is where it started. So you can't blame the first book that did it for other people that copied it later. In this instance, there's a tremendous number of movies that copied from this, and yet it still doesn't feel overplayed when I watch this. I don't look at it and say, oh yeah, I've seen that a hundred times, because even the movies that copied it, I don't think matched it. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that same thing as I think it's because nothing else lived up to it, which is why it, those copies didn't diminish this original. Yeah. It's, and, and I'm telling you, you know, there's gotta be some people who, who are listening to this, or at least I hope there are, who've never seen this movie. Mm-hmm. And I cannot recommend strongly enough that they go out and see this at this time. Cause this movie is just so fresh at 80 years old, or at, I guess 78 years old. <laughs> yes, it is. So Everyone really should see it. I'm, when we saw it at the theater, the, the nice independent theater where we go, they always ask the crowd, you know, who hasn't seen this movie before? And I remember we were shocked that half the theater hadn't seen this film. But they had heard of it well enough, they knew to come out and see it on the big screen because it was a packed audience. I'm hoping when they walked out of the theater that they were a buzz because this, this should have captured their imaginations. Absolutely. Everyone was applauding. It's you know they they do the, those revival movies. I think it's I don't know if it's once a week or once a month or however often they do them. A couple of t- I think it's a couple of times a month. Uh, and I haven't gotten a chance to see too many of them. But if I saw that they were showing this one again, I would go out of my way. I've never seen this. I've never seen it on anything except for a TV set. And I don't think I've ever seen it in a widescreen version. Even the DVD is the uh, cropped version. Uh, and I, that's a good point, Paul. I'm trying to remember. I think what we saw 
was also uh, this. I wonder if there isn't a, you know, maybe there's not a widescreen version. It was in Technicolor, but maybe it wasn't done in widescreen. That's a really good point. I'd have to look that up now. Or it would be very sad to find out that it was widescreen and they no longer have a copy of that print anywhere. Oh, that would be tragic. It really would. Well, this was named, I think it was by uh, the American Film Institute as you know one of the most historically uh, important movies of its day, and it's been preserved. You know, it's it's one of the ones that's been uh, you know marked to be preserved because of that. So certainly, if there's a, if there's not a widescreen right. version, it would that would be a sin. Moving along with the yes. story, though. Uh, the next thing we have after Robin's escape from the clutches of death would be King Richard's return. Now, at that point, he and his side men, I don't even know who they are. Uh, <laughs> they never really explained, but they were at, in the Crusades. Uh, this, this movie just, by the way, takes place uh, shortly before the year 1200, I believe. And yes. uh, they've returned. So he, he had been held for ransom, but somehow or another he escaped. Uh, and he's with his men, but for whatever reason, they're traveling incognito. And I guess, at least in theory, the reason would be that they're uh, in fear that if people find out that he's returning, somebody's going to try to kill him. So they want to get back safely before he reveals himself. But the uh, the archbishop, I guess it's the archbishop, I don't know if I'm getting his title right, he figures out what's going on and goes and warns Prince John, who then sends Dickon to kill uh King Richard. And that's that's a short scene, but obviously very meaningful as far as where the movie's going to go from this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you have any point on that? Well, what I really... That really shows, again, Prince John's treachery. He isn't just going to take advantage of Richard's absence. He's more than willing to have Richard killed. So that, again, shows his treachery and establishes what we already knew about him, but I do like that point, that plot point to the movie. Yeah, I agree. And it, it definitely shows the, the level of uh, conniving that he'll go through. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm surprised, actually, I'm a little bit surprised that he tried to do it as surreptitiously as he did, and he didn't go for the all-out blitz. <laughs> yeah, good point. But it made for a good plot point because Marion and her uh, lady-in-waiting, I'm trying to remember what her name is, I believe Bess, uh, who's I a funny right. character of her own on her own in this movie. She's got some comic relief and, and she's got a romance with much. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's that's definitely an enjoyable scene. Yeah, that was fun. So Maid Marian's going to go out and warn Robin until Sir Guy realizes what she's going to do. So she gets put into the dungeon and uh, basically uh, marked for execution. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a fabulous scene with Maid Marian there, too. I mean, again, showing her strong will. Um, She doesn't back down. She doesn't make excuses. She stands right up for what she believes, even though she doesn't know she's going to be rescued. She puts her life on the line. She shows her nobility. Yes, that's a good way to put it. And and I guess Bess shows her nobility as well, because in light of Marion being held uh, prisoner, she goes out and warns much about what's going to go on. And she's not really so much concerned about King Richard as she is about Marion. And, you know, her, her whole thing is, you know, she, she wants him to save Marion before, before she, you know, she gets killed. And much in a heroic moment goes and battles Dickon, who is clearly the superior uh, swordsman and more vicious in his way of doing things. But much gets the upper hand and takes him out. At, you know, and, and is injured himself in the process. Again, another really great heroic scene, though. It really shows that people are willing to put their lives online on the line, and again shows the serious nature of what's going on behind the scenes. They know that this is important and means a lot. So I like that scene a lot too. Right. Yeah. It's again, you know, it's 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 almost like every character has their moment to shine, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. that's one of Much's scenes. So ultimately, then. He comes, they warn King Richard, and we have a nice, another nice character scene where Robin stops Richard and his men, thinking that they're just rich travelers, and he's going to take their money because he's trying to collect for Richard's ransom, unlike right. what John was doing. Uh, and Richard doesn't reveal himself until Robin really shows you know, his, his motivations, and then much comes and warns them, 
and Robin starts to give orders to go basically search and find Richard, and then Richard says, you don't need to find him, he's right here, and he pulls down his hood and reveals himself. Which I is, enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, this, you know, that's one of the moments, I believe, where, you know, where the score starts to swell up a little bit, and it makes for a, a dramatic moment. And the score in this is worth mentioning because it's really... You know, just just very very well done. Very, it it really ups the uh, the adventure feel about the movie. And then even you know Robin's theme with the dun 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 dun. dun mm-hmm. It's it's just you know very memorable. And I understand. And I think go, that's go actually one of the uh, Oscars that it won. I believe is that right, Paul? They uh, well, what, what I had just noted was that it was nominated for Best Picture, uh, which it did not win. Right. Uh, which to me is just, you know, <laughs> I just don't understand that. But uh, that year, uh, You Can't Take It With You won, which I have to confess I've never seen. But it is a Frank Capra movie. So that in and of itself makes me say, well, maybe it was worth winning Best Picture. Because I do <laughs> love Frank Capra movies. I do, too. So, yeah, that's absolutely. I think, though, and I remembered that this movie didn't win Best Picture. I didn't remember what did. So I'm glad you knew. But I, I think this movie did win a couple of Oscars. I think it won for the score. And I think it also won for Best Art Direction. I think you're probably right on both counts. And I'm just trying to punch that up while we're talking. I should have had it on my screen already. Well, Paul, you let us down. I know. I know. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> well, we'll talk just while you're looking that up. We'll talk just another moment about that scene with King Richard, because I really like that scene. I like that even when King Richard and his men are in the tavern and they're you can see that they're taking in the situation. They're taking in the news. They're trying to figure out what's going on. They keep hearing Robin's name mentioned. And then when they get stopped buying in the, him in the forest, they're you know, still a bit wary. And I just love the fact that once that scene comes up with much that, you know, Robin is immediately, this is what we have to do to save King Richard. And then Richard realizes what he's been hearing is true. Yeah. And and one of the things I like about this scene too, is that uh, Robin doesn't back down in the slightest. Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't say, oh, well, you know, I'm loyal to King Richard and whatever he does is okay. He's He comes right and says, I blame King Richard too because he shouldn't have been off doing what he was doing. He should have been protecting, you know, the, the, his his kingdom. He, he didn't need to be off on the crusades. And I, right. I think that's a great moment for him. And why I'm not getting the 1938 Academy Award winners up, I don't know. Well, so, that, so you know what? I'm just going to take your word for it, Darren, that you're correct. <laughs> whatever it, I say. Yeah, I'm good with that. Very good. So now that that leads us to our uh, basically our climactic battle of the movie. Uh, you know, when Robin comes up with the scheme, and now it's when he has the uh, Archbishop have he has him lead them into the castle. You know, where they they're dressed as friars so that they could sneak in. Uh, all under the pretense of Prince John being coronated as king, you know, based on the thought that they believe that King Richard has now been killed. And, you know, it, it's obviously treasonous on his part to, to be doing this. And eventually the, you know, Robin and his men reveal themselves, and then we have some spectacular sword fighting going on. Oh, spectacular is right. That fight between Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone is fantastic. That you you said you watched this on the DVD version. Yes, you have the two disc DVD. It's uh, actually we'll we'll throw a little shout out out there to our good friend Keith G. Baker, who actually gave us as a gift last year the Blu-ray version of this, oh, nice. which was filled with all the extras that we had never seen. So we've been able to watch this movie, glorious Blu-ray, and with all these extras, all thanks to Keith G. Baker. He also gave us Howard Hill's autobiography, so we've read that as well in the last year. So he helped us prep for this without uh, knowing it in advance. Well, I, I, th- I thank him then. I was going to add one thing I love about the autobiography is that Errol Flynn actually wrote the introduction for it because he was friends with Howard Hill. Mm. Nice. Very nice. Uh, well, I have the two-disc DVD version of the movie. I don't have it on Blu-ray. Uh, but that has a documentary on it, which I would think is probably on the Blu-ray as well. Uh, and they have some scenes in there with the... I think it's actually the son of the swordsman who worked on the movie, but he worked with his dad uh, oh. at the time. And he starts showing how people would traditionally do sword fights in the movies and how it just wasn't realistic and that he 
that he or they worked with the actors to try and make it so much more realistic. And he talks about how Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone were both excellent swordsmen by the time they were mm. done. Mm. Mm. That doesn't surprise me at all. That's really nice to hear. I'll have to look for that extra and watch it because the, you're right. The sword fight in this looks very realistic. I mean, it's uh, I love the way they you know, besides the fact that the sword work is great, they take advantage of everything in the room, the way a real fight would really go, which is you're using everything you can to defeat your opponent. And that's certainly what happens during this fight. Yeah, they use the giant candle holder and the chairs and everything that that's around them uh, until Robin finally gets the upper hand and you know, se- sends Sir Guy of Gisborne to his death, falling to his death. And I love the cinematography on the whole sequence, how they are using, like you say, all of the props and everything in the room, and they're moving all across the castle. And I love how the lighting casts the shadows on the pillars. That was just amazing silhouettes there in that sequence. And a a stunning fall, just like you mentioned, Paul, when that stuntman, oh, that stuntman, my goodness, that looked painful. And they they show that in the documentary. Uh, They show when Basil Rathbone actually falls. And it's like a two-foot fall. Because <laughs> they had – it was actually like a black and white camera that they had from a different angle. Oh, okay. So somebody must have been filming something for I, – I, I don't know. You know, Maybe they were making it for the purposes of you know, creating a documentary at some point. But there was that. Uh, so in, in any event, they end up uh, defeating the bad guys. King Richard is back in power. He ban- banishes Prince John. And gives Robin the order to uh, marry marry Maid Marian, and uh, <laughs> is is responded to with "May he follow all of his orders with such pleasure." Something along those lines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a great line. That was wonderful. <laughs> and they walk out. The doors close, and the movie ends. So I think I'm trying to remember the length of the movie. It's about an hour and forty five minutes, an hour and fifty minutes, somewhere in there. It's right around there, yeah. Under two hours. And yes. Anybody who hasn't seen this, I just can't emphasize enough. Boy, you really got to get get on this one. Um, this this is a perennial for me, and this is one as as you mentioned earlier. I could watch this over and over again. I could watch this. Uh, you know, I, I watched it a week ago. I started to watch it again. I could put it on from the beginning again right now if I want to, and mm-hmm. and it, it won't lose any dramatic effect for me. Oh no, you're absolutely right. It, it's that great a movie. Everyone who hasn't seen it really should. Even if this these period adventures aren't your uh, cup of tea this is one that you should see just to know uh, the best and brightest of the genre it's spectacular and i can't imagine anyone who would actually sit down and watch it not liking it honestly i agree yeah, me too and i think this is truly an all ages movie yes i think children could enjoy it adults will enjoy it mm. old people will enjoy it, <laughs> it it's, it's there's really no you know it, it's got something to appeal to everyone it really does. It's beautifully filmed. It's beautifully acted. Uh, the script's great. The dialogue is great. Like you said, it it doesn't seem dated. Even the dialogue, it doesn't seem overly flowery or anything like that. It's it's just really gorgeous and it's beautiful to look at. You know, one thing is as we were going through that, we uh, I wanted to mention that I we forgot to mention is all that wonderful outdoor work that they did for Sherwood Forest. They, it's amazing to me. This is something I remember seeing in a documentary at some point in time because they filmed all the Sherwood Forest scenes first, and they filmed them in Northern California, and it they were late getting started, so fall had come, and the leaves were turning brown, the grass was turning brown, and they actually went through and spray-painted the leaves and the grass green. And, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they really took, they took so much care with this movie to make it look gorgeous even to that sort of degree because i mean it looks so lush you can't see that but you have to wonder if that's even why it looks more lush than it is it's all freshly painted (laughs) but the film is uh, you know you can tell they put everything they could into it they wanted it to be successful they needed it to be successful and a lot of time in pre-production this movie was in pre-production for three or four years so they really gave it the attention that it needed and i think that's why it's held up for almost 80 years i'm glad they respected the story that much Mm -hmm. to to care about it and to invest so much in it Mm -hmm. now i did hear talk that they originally thought that this could be a series of movies and unfortunately that never happened 
No, you're right about that, too. I, I hadn't heard the series of before, but th- this was so successful, they planned a sequel for years. It was always sort of in pre-development that they were going to make a sequel. I'm even trying to remember this This movie got a, a major re-release for its 10th anniversary. It made almost as much money again on its re-release. And I'm even trying to remember if they were still contemplating a sequel at that point in time. And that that might have been the reason for the re-release. But they really planned to make one. But it's sort of one of those things. R- Ruth's favorite movie is The Princess Bride. And it's sort of like the the man who wrote that. His fans have clamored for a sequel for decades. And he's tried to write one, but he sort of admitted himself it's it's perfect as it is there shouldn't be a sequel. And that's maybe sort of what happened with this. It's perfect as it is. And no matter how much they wanted a sequel, they couldn't come up with one. Well, and I, I've said in the past, I'm a sucker for sequels because <laughs> if I like characters and if I like a movie, I can, I, I'm never going to say, Oh, I've had enough. I don't need any more. <laughs> now, often that leads me to ruin because a lot of sequels are subpar, but you know, often they're, quality as well so it's it's still worthwhile plus I'm, I'm almost always willing to give a pass to a sequel that's not quite as good as the original as long mm. as it's still entertaining yeah uh, so but i i respect when the people have such respect for the original that they're not willing to make a sequel unless they really feel they can match the quality mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, and that's I agree what with it sounds you like with what you're saying about the princess bride exactly he actually i think and he has published it. It's like he started a sequel many times, and I think there's one chapter that exists of it. So he sort of published it as a novelty, but you know he's not going to spoil that. And I think you're absolutely right. I agree with you on both fronts. I'm a sucker for sequels too, Paul, because if I love a movie, that usually means I love the characters, and it means I want to spend more time with those characters, and I want to spend more time in that setting. So I'm a big sucker for sequels. And sometimes they're not as good, but you just still enjoy spending the time. Sometimes they're Jaws 4, but you watch it once. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, You know, I I think about, you know, we talked about the extensive list of movies that you gave me, Darren. And uh, one of the things you mentioned, and and I think actually you specifically said, uh, you know, movie series that, you you know, that that you're a fan of series. (laughs) And one of the ones you mentioned is one that I've come out and, you know, made it very clear that I'm a big fan of is the uh, Planet of the Apes series. Oh, yeah. yeah. And. I remember when they did Planet of the Apes week on Two True Freaks, uh, you know, Scott and Chris are admittedly not big fans of Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Mm. And while I come out and say, you know, I I understand that's not of the quality, you know, story or filmmaking of the other movies in the series, but I still love it because it still gives me another chance to spend some time with this world that I enjoyed so much. So uh, Andy Leyland and I ended up doing the commentary for that because they just didn't want to. Well, I agree with you 100% on that movie. I like it because I get to spend more time in that world. So that's, yeah, so we're definitely kindred spirits as far as sequels go. (laughs) So I guess I'm going to ask the most anticlimactic question I could possibly ask at this point is what do you think, guys? Is this yours? It is Jaws. Yes, it's Jaws. (laughs) Yeah, it it is. And I have to say, you know, I I think, uh, you know, people in the geek world i think we we love lists <laughs> and and for, for years i've always had you know if i got nothing to do and i'm just sitting trying to kill some time i'll start saying okay what are, what are my top 25 movies of all time and and i've you know many many times over the years i've i've listed them and there's probably about 10 that are always on the list no matter what and then about 15 that might change sometimes or, or maybe 15 that stay the same and 10 to change i don't really know i never compared the lists but one thing I could tell you is this movie has been in my top 25 forever, and it will always be. And it may it may fall in a different spot. It may go from number two at some time to number 14 at some time to number 10 at another time. But it's always in my top movies of all time list. I think this movie is virtually flawless. There are a couple of little nitpicks, and we talked about some of those. But none of them have the slightest impact on the ability to enjoy this movie. And it is just... A movie where I can just immerse myself in it from the first scene, and I'm happy watching it until it's over every time. And uh, it sounds to me, based on our conversation, that you guys would have the exact same sentiment about it. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more uh, completely. 
And that said, I appreciate you guys coming on with me very much. I'm, I'm glad we managed to find the time to do this. And there's no question, as, as we've said a couple of times, that we will be meeting up again in the not-too-distant future to pick another movie off your list and do. Oh, thank you. That'll be great. It, it will be. We've had a fantastic time, Paul. We, we enjoy all your different shows, so it's great to have been invited on here and get a chance to talk about one of our favorites. And thank you for being so kind and, and helpful to us in getting through this. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. It was fun for me, too, and I really appreciate you guys coming on. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Thanks. What's the matter? Have you no stomach for honest meat? For honest meat, yes. But I've no stomach for traitors. You call me traitor? You? Yes. And every man here who offers you allegiance. And what do you propose to do? I'll organize revolt. Exact a death for a death. And I'll never rest until every Saxon in the Shire can stand up free men and strike a blow for Richard in England. Have you finished? I'm only just beginning. From this night on, I use every means in my power to fight you. 